Hi, this is Dylan, your podcast host. We've got a very special episode today, which probably explains why you see such a long length in the audio track. In this episode, Aaron and I will look at four interviews I did with founders of startup companies. Kumar Parameswaran, founder of NirvanaSoft, a complex billing solution provider that was bought by Hanson Technologies in 2010. Natalie Goodman, founder of Incentifind, a database for green power incentives. George Kutitas, founder of Gridmates, a company that offers digital innovation for utility bill and energy assistance programs. And a fourth interview you'll just have to listen to find out. A big thanks to all of the founders for participating in this experiment, and to you for taking a listen. I promise it'll be worth it to stick it out to the end. Let us know if you like this little project, and more may be on the way. And now, on with the show. on the grid. I'm your host Dylan Lockwood. Joining me as always is Aaron Hardick. How are you doing Aaron? I'm doing well today Dylan. Got home from some traveling for our start at ETS event which was quite successful Um, so I'm in pretty high spirits. Same. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing all the startups present, talking with different judges about what went down and and if you're a regular listener then you'll be able to hear more about started ETS coming out in the following weeks uh, but we've got something very special planned for you today that's been in the works for a little while we've been going around talking to some of the people we know that uh, founded uh, small startup companies like the ones that are hoping to break out at started ETS and they're some of the ones who did break out and we wanted to hear their stories about about what caused them to want to get into markets, how they got into the energy space, and uh, what advice they have for other people looking to do the same. We're going to be playing those interviews, starting with this first one with the founder of NirvanaSoft, Kumar Parameswaran. My name is Parameswaran. I'm the founder of a company called uh, NirvanaSoft, and uh, that was founded in 1997, and we subsequently sold to Hanson Technologies in uh, 2010. And currently I do consulting work. I continue, uh, continue to do consulting work for Hanson Technologies, effectively um, working on sales and marketing and product strategy for, uh, for Hanson Technologies. Excellent. So uh, what was your eureka moment when you decided you wanted to start a company? Well, it was not. It wasn't quite a eureka moment. It sort of uh, was a combination of a series of small steps. Um, I had been working in uh, 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 Time Warner for about fifteen years, and uh, due to a series of things, in uh, nineteen ninety-seven, uh, I decided that after fifteen years of uh, working for corporate America, I was uh, eligible for, for parole. So I decided to get out. At that point, if you remember, was uh, basically the beginning of the dot-com boom. So a lot of uh, my friends had also left Time Warner around that time. So at that point, given my background in uh, uh, working in uh, technology, as well as uh, I started out in Time Warner as a um, essentially systems guy, and uh, eventually ended up becoming the uh, becoming the executive chief of finance operations for one of the 
divisions that I helped them start. So the combination of technology as well as uh, some experience in uh, startup called Hincharma divisions of Time Warner that uh, got me to thinking that I should probably go do my own thing. And uh, at that point, if you remember, uh, 96 was when uh, local telecom was uh, deregulated. So that was one area which caught my interest. Again, having worked for uh, Time Warner, I, I was very familiar with the telecom industry. And uh, so that was our first focus. I joined hands with uh, a friend of mine uh, who used to work for uh, uh, Capgemini at that time. Uh, the two of us started up, uh, wanted to start up a business. And uh, coincidentally, uh, that was also the time when the electricity deregulation was being talked about. And one of my friends in uh, uh, the telecom business, a guy named Ashok Rao, was hired by a company formerly known as Enron uh, to start up a retail arm of Enron in terms of the deregulated markets. And the first market to go into uh, place was going to be California in uh, 1998. So one of the first people I should have called was uh, myself. And uh, in fact, this uh, one line, which is uh, at that point, at that, uh, I, would, I would almost want to call it seductive in the sense that uh, he called me up and says, uh, you and I have started up uh, companies. Uh, when do you get to start up an industry? Because there was no such thing as electric deregulation prior to that point. And that actually was extremely uh, interesting to me. And I said, well, I don't know anything about electricity. And he says, don't worry about it because nobody else knows anything about deregulated business either. So I joined that team and subsequently started working on the whole back office systems and related uh, um, business entities. And uh, so it was along those lines. I did not sign up as an employee. I signed up uh, as a consultant working for uh, the company that uh, eventually we decided to name Nirvana, Nirvana Soft. So, and in fact, uh, the name actually is a funny story because uh, we were all sitting there in uh, one of the bars around uh, Enron in Houston. And uh, we're talking about what electricity regulation would mean. And at that point, the rules are just being written and people really did not have any idea of what, uh, uh, how it would all eventually turn out. Uh, however, everybody thought that that was the greatest thing that uh, was going to happen to the energy industry. And so, so it's like, um, well, it's the greatest thing that's going to happen. However, none of us really know what, it's how it's going to turn out or what the experience is going to be. And I think I, I, at that point I said, ah, that sounds like a lot like Nirvana because do you know what happens to you the day after Nirvana? No, exactly, that's the point. So therefore we decided to name the company Nirvana Inc. However, we couldn't call it Nirvana Inc because Kurt Cobain's estate already had that name. So we had to call ourselves Nirvana Soft Incorporated. And that's how it started with, uh, with uh, Enron as uh, my first client, and uh, uh, I guess uh, we concentrated on various aspects of electricity and natural gas deregulation. And it was, again, within a few months, it became clear that the main action was going to be on the commercial and industrial sector, as opposed to on the residential side because of all the consumer protection laws that were being written in. 
again, it was at that point, it was a chaotic. However, industrial contracts were, were actually, there had some, there had been some precedent, precedent for an industrial uh, contract being uh, written with electric companies. So we decided to concentrate on the commercial and industrial uh, end of the game. And uh, I guess in about, I want to say end of uh, 98, when California was uh, all ready to go and Pennsylvania was cranking up uh, deregulation process to start in, I believe, January or January or February of uh, 1999. That's when uh, we decided to go and run as a, as a significant, you know, which took up a significant chunk of my time. I left them and uh, uh, essentially decided to concentrate on software and signed up our first client who was uh, the income and utility in uh, New York City. And that was our first official client for the software as opposed to uh, consulting. That's awesome. So, uh, my next question was going to be how you came up with the name, but you've already deftly answered that. Um, <laughs> so my final question then is, uh, what is some advice you have for budding entrepreneurs in the energy space? Any kind of business, you have to evaluate the impact of various risks. And that is obvious and, and you should essentially brace for one or more of those things happening. And uh, in the energy industry, your biggest risk, there are two big risks in the energy industry. One is technology and the second is regulation. Regulatory policy, unfortunately, has a significant effect on the emergence of this whole industry. And uh, in the United States, electric regula regulations are not nationwide. That was one of the first things I had to learn, um, shall we say the hard way, uh, in the uh, late 90s. Because coming from the telecom background, telecom is, is basically run by the federal government. FCC sets all the policies and, and off you go. And they set the policies, they set the rules, and they set the regulations. Whereas in the energy business, your regulatory policies at the state level, which means there is a different set in every different state, there's a different set of rules. And to be able to play in that energy business on the one hand becomes very complicated, but in our case, if I may say so, it kind of helped us because it uh, made the business a little more complex than it had to be. And therefore selling tools to the companies that were actually playing in the energy business, which is what we did, we sold uh, back office software for uh, the deregulated players in the elect electricity and natural gas markets. And the fact that uh, you had to do this state by state in indeed forced us to think the technology that we were bringing to the table and uh, make sure that it had enough flexibility and adaptability to be able to go in there. And so regulatory policy can make or break this business as uh, the current uh, developments in uh, the Northeast uh, uh, shows, because the markets have slowed down significantly because of regulatory policy changes. The second big threat is going to be technology. As you can see, in the last five, to ten, five years or so, the entire supply chain all behind the electric uh, industry in this country has been uh, turned upside down. And uh, it's the same thing with the natural gas because, because of the whole supply chain 
changes, 10 years, 10 to 12 years ago, we saw gas prices of uh, between nine and $10, or even as high as $12 in some cases. Whereas in the, in the last uh, three, four years, it has never gone, you know, it's basically been trading in a very narrow band under $3. So that is primarily because of, um, you know, uh, fracking and shale and all of that. I would, uh, so the technology behind the supply chain has significantly disrupted that industry. Distributed generation, wind and solar becoming far more cheap, uh, far more cheap as well as competitive with the traditional sources such as uh, uh, coal and uh, any kind of fossil fuels or uh, nuclear has created a significant change in the way your underlying consumers consume electricity. So distributed means that people essentially have a dual generation plant in the, on top of their roofs. And uh, there's also some uh, construct called community solar, which is now the latest thing that has really taken off because of the economics behind being able to deliver solar power to uh, individuals at home. So those in combination, those technologies have completely uh, turned the supply chain up, uh, uh, upside down and therefore anybody who is selling those products to the end use customers has to be able to adapt fast. And therefore all the enabling technologies behind them have also got to get, get up to speed really, really fast. The uh, uh, throw on top of that, the whole regulation uh, um, uh, that is going on on the solar and the renewable energy side. Um, if you haven't read uh, another, yet another initiative from another state government uh, or a local government uh, in terms of improving the percentage of renewable energy in, in the total mix, if you haven't heard any of that in uh, uh, the last uh, uh, 12 to 14 months, then it's time to uh, come, out, come out from under the rock because that has exactly been what's happening in every single state. Um, about, um, say, for example, take community solar about um, two, two and a half years ago, there were probably three states which had any kind of comprehensive regulatory policy on um, the, the community solar business. And today, there are 20 states who are up and running. So to some extent, the change that is going to happen in terms of thanks to renewable energy is probably as going, going to be as big as what happened with deregulation in the late 90s. So if you are thinking of um, starting up a company and, and you want to play in some part of the energy industry, that is really what you have to watch out for. There is going to be tremendous amount of um, technology and uh, regulatory uncertainty coming up and because on the one hand, the renewable energy mandates are very positive development. However, uh, the deregulation itself, especially when it comes to the mass market that is small and uh, residential customers, there is actually, a uh, it look, almost looks like a lot of legislative action that, is that has been either done or beginning to happen that are actually detrimental to the mass market uh, electricity business. Uh, initiatives in, uh, you know, there are rules in New York, uh, Connecticut, 
and Ohio, not to, not to forget Ohio uh, recently, which essentially are threatening the deregulated mass market. However, the commercial and industrial side seems to be doing just fine. So in the energy business, yes, um, if you're going to start startup right now, look for a, don't look for any smooth sailing in the next uh, five, five years or so. And that was Kumar, big thanks to him for coming on and talking with us. Aaron, uh, what about his story really jumped out to you? I think it's interesting really the emphasis that he puts on like regulation and regulatory policy. He says regulatory policy can make or break you. So he found this area in the market. He found what he thought was, you know, an opportunity in an emerging market, um, and he pursued it. But he talks a lot about, you know, how policy has really, you know, been a challenge for him, and that's kind of, you know, a main a main factor in this story, and that's probably what stood out to me the most. Yeah, and, but and uh, he makes a lot of references to telecom in how sort of their deregulation process went, and I think he I think he kind of wants to mirror that for the energy space and and is uh, and leveraged his and basically tried to pursue. That's that sort of avenue, while also just um, finding it, finding an opening in the market, like you said. He talks about his experience in, in telecom and that kind of deregulation and how policy really changed to allow more competition in that space, and then he draws that parallel to the electric industry and talks about how he just kind of took his experience with that deregulation of telecom and applied that knowledge to the electric utility industry and therefore he could kind of understand where policy was going to go or at least he had an idea of where it was going to go and so he made a lot of business decisions based off that knowledge from being in telecom and translated into the electric utility industry and I think he you know, drew these parallels in terms of, you know, like these timelines of how long it took to deregulate telecom and, and what those different steps were like and how they influenced businesses. And he kind of talks about how in the past three to five years things have changed so drastically um, in the electric utility industry. And that's how he really, you know, came up with this idea and, and what made him pursue it is he had all this knowledge and he really felt like he knew what was going to come next from a, a policy standpoint and made him comfortable enough or confident, maybe is the right word, uh, it, to pursue a business around that. Yeah, and I think that expertise really shines through in the, in the advice he was giving. He was talking about... Uh, how you know you got to be aware of how regulation is you know very fluid and how what how it can affect your business and how to adequately prepare for that. I think it's interesting the emphasis that he puts on state and local policy. Um, you know he specifically talks about distributed energy resources, but he you know has the viewpoint that whatever is happening at the local level is really going to be what's most influential. I think a lot of people can you know, look at federal policy around these things and assume that that's really going to shape how companies behave in markets, but it's really happening, what he's saying and his advice is, you know, 
focus on what's happening at the, the local level, the state level, to get an understanding of how companies are going to act in these markets. And I think that's really important because young budding entrepreneurs can get overwhelmed by policy, especially in such a heavily regulated industry such as uh, electric utilities. And so he's saying his advice, you know, look at what's happening at the local level, look at what other states are doing, look across states. I'm not saying when I say look across states, like not don't look at federal policy. He's saying like look at look at what's going on in Texas, and then look at what's going on in maybe Maine. Where are there you know uh, where are there commonalities between those two places, and then how can you start to take what's happening in each individual state and make more of a holistic picture of what's going to happen in the whole market that way? And I think that's kind of the the most interesting advice he has. Yeah, uh, I'm, and I, I also noted that he said follow uh, deregulation trends, and I think that that's, uh, that's decent advice for figuring out where a new opening in the market might, might come, and that's sort of what he did. And then the other thing he says is, at the end, he says, don't look for any smooth sailing, which I, I don't think that should ever be taken for granted. I don't think it's news to anyone that starting a business is uh, hard. I think that that's to be expected, but especially in such an environment that's changing so rapidly, things are going to get bumpy, and you have to be able to, you know, commit and stay committed to your your goal, to your objective. And so, uh, when he says, you know, don't look for any smooth sailing, like you have to be ready to, you know pull your boots up by their straps and just get get in there and work hard and try to pursue your your goal your in, your end goal to to make it happen because it's not going to be easy uh, well put Aaron uh, it's a it's a very it's a very clear message and uh, kind of a good, a good summation of his story and we thank Kumar for it shifting gears a bit we've got another uh, we've got another founder interview next Natalie Goodman, she's the founder of a company called Incentifind, and let's hear what she had to say. So I'm here with Natalie Goodman, the founder of Incentifind. How are you doing, Natalie? Hi, good morning. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for being on to talk to us about uh, about your personal journey. So uh, why don't you tell me what the moment what the moment was, the sort of eureka moment where you decided you wanted to start a company? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, it, it was a kind of a funny eureka moment because uh, I always like to tell folks, incentifying was a complete accident. Um, uh, my background's architecture, specifically green um, architecture, so I had a long career, uh, I'd say about 10 years before I started incentifying, where I would green a lot of um, corporations that had a, a lot of real estate, I would help them green um, their real estate. So implementing sustainable measures, uh, helping them achieve uh, sustainability goals. And I wanted to, I traveled the world, I'd lived in, uh, you know, a few different countries and had been overseas for almost five years. I was really tired and said, you know what, I want to come back to the U.S. I want to green some buildings in the U.S. 
And I knew that by law, our government had to give away uh, incentives to promote green building. So I had just phoned up a friend of mine at the Department of Energy and just said, you know what, I know by law, all of these levels of government have to give away incentives to promote green building. Can you just give me access or tell me where this database is? Surely, you know, for all of these incentives that are given away across 50 states and several levels of government, there had to have been a searchable database. And my friend at the Department of Energy kind of laughed and said, oh, in good old government fashion, there really isn't uh, a searchable database. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll build it. And again, this was, I didn't think about it being incentivizing. I thought it, thought of it as I'm building a database for Natalie's consulting, you know, side hustle as a, a green architect coming back to the United States. Um, I'd spent about a year doing it um, with some other folks and nearly um, 12 months later when I had phoned my friend back up at the Department of Energy and said, hey, you know what, um, I finished doing that, building that database, it's, it's sick, you should see it, it's completely searchable, all 50 states, all these levels of government, it's got energy efficiency and water conservation and renewables, and he just kind of stopped me and said, Natalie, I had no idea you were actually going to do that. <laughs> By the way, you are now holding the nation's only database for green incentives. And it was actually at that point that I realized, okay, I, I have something really of value here, not from a monetary standpoint, but from a, um, a standpoint where I knew this kind of data needed to be made available to um, as many property owners in residential and commercial sectors as possible. It needed to be made available to those in the architecture, engineering, and construction industries. Um, and so it was at that point that I began to think about how do I begin, uh, you know, start a startup so that I could make this data available to a wider group and not just keep it selfishly for myself and this little consultancy, you know, side hustle that I was trying to build. So it was a complete accident. Um, I'd love to tell you I had this grand plan to start incentivizing and, you know, planned it accordingly, but it, it just happened. And um, that's kind of where the journey began. So once you sort of did, once you sort of made that next step, uh, what, how did you manage to break your way into the market? Yeah, great question. So when I began asking around actually, and I got, that's when I got connected to, to Capital Factory. Um, they, you know, there was this fantastic person there, uh, Haley Netherton, and we got connected and, you know, I said, I, I really don't know <laughs> how to start a startup. Um, I was doing some research online. You guys seem to have a really good grasp on how to curate this process and help me understand all those baby steps leading up to identifying the right kind of target market, right? The right kind of model. Um, how would you monetize that, uh, Every, everything you need to know just to start, I don't even know if I'd say startup, but just a business in general. And um, at that point, Incentifying was uh, invited to join their accelerator. Um, and that was a wonderful process to really just kind of throw us into the deep end and say, all right, well, if you're going to ask the question on how to start a startup, here you go. Um, and so we went through that curated process. It was grueling. It was tough. Um, we had a lot of change of dynamics. I 
you know, essentially had came in with two co-founders, walked out with no co-founders, became the founder, had an entirely different team. Um, but we also had really exciting metrics, like where we landed four national channel partners. Um, we were able to identify the three business models that we would need to uh, leverage in order to really obtain um, a share of the market that we wanted to. Um, it was it was a fantastic process. Uh, like I said, grueling but worth it. So that's that's sort of how we began to shape out Incentifine. And after graduating from that accelerator that gave us the right kind of tools that we needed, um, we then joined um, another group here in Houston where we're based, where they kind of just begin um, putting up, or I guess I should say, they begin offering strategic access. Um, to, it might be like fractional executives, um, the right kind of mentors and advisors. So as you begin to encounter certain road humps, right, you can sort of um, uh, pull or ask or request these certain, uh, the access to these certain folks, and they can begin to help you identify, all right, here's what you're doing right, here's what you're doing wrong, here's some things you might want to examine a little more closely, or here's some tools in which you can better analyze um, this opportunity or gap and then mitigate it. But um, I think always having a good ecosystem around us has been incredibly critical to um, both our growth, but also preventing us from completely falling on our face. So where'd you come up with the name Incentifying? Is that a, <laughs> is that a, I'm assuming it's a combination of some words. Yeah, it is. Incentifying is a mashup and um, it was um, an overnight name mashup where we used to have a different name. Uh, it was Green Money Search when we originally started until we tried to put a trademark on it and then quickly found ourselves um, almost in, in a, a lawsuit because this patent troll had a, a control, complete control over the use of green money together in any way, shape, or form. We've had it since like the 70s. Uh, so to avoid that, um, we hired, we tapped into our network here in Houston and said, we have to change our name quickly. Um, and to, again, just to avoid this unfortunate situation. And um, anyways, we were recommended to this gal. We ran like a four hour workshop, looked at, you know, kind of the, the mission behind what we were doing, um, how essentially we, we ho housed this you know, national database of incentives, and we're ultimately just trying to connect green projects to green incentives. It's all about finding these incentives. So this mashup of incentifying uh, emerged out of that uh, place of necessity more than anything. But it was a fun workshop. Um, no regrets about it. Um, our name is pretty catchy, and honestly, most people once they hear kind of our tagline and our name, they they easily understand what it is that we do. Natalie, do you have any advice for uh, people who are maybe up-and-coming entrepreneurs or trying to break into the energy space? Um, advice for any entrepreneurs breaking into the energy space? Um, I, yeah, I'd say probably the one thing I've realized in this journey, and I think whether it's startup or just a life journey, uh, the one word that comes to mind is ego. Um, be very cognizant of your ego because the one thing I've noticed in the startup world, right, is, is you have to be 
you need to be confident. You need to know what you have, but you also need to know what you don't have, right? You need to know the opportunities that you have in front of you, but you need to know the gaps that you need to fill, right? And it's sort of managing all of those. And I find that we're always encouraged as founders or a founding team to be incredibly confident, but we need to kind of balance that against uh, this ego that's inside all of us. And so I guess to give an example of that is that, you know, let's say, um, I don't know, let's, in this case, you said an entrepreneur was uh, in the energy space. Let's just say they had an energy software as a service, for example, and this particular founder is talking to a mentor about their software as a service. And the mentor says, you know, um, I really didn't have a good experience during this portion of going through your software as a service. A portion of your ego could say, well, gosh, don't they, don't they have the slightest clue of how far we've, you know, uh, come, how hard we've worked? I mean, it must be so easy from their vantage point to just point out all of the wrongs, right? And I think, you know, the way, a better way of approaching that if you're cognizant of your ego is to say, you know what, okay, can, can you tell me more about that experience? Because what if they're right? What if? What if we just embrace, take out that ego? I think it's great to be confident, but if we could just set aside that ego a lot of the time and just embrace what others are trying to tell us, what could we learn, right? So maybe a different way of approaching that same scenario is, again, going back into uh, being a founder, sitting across from you know a mentor, an advisor, and they're telling you they didn't have a good experience at, at a certain portion within your software as a service. Instead of putting your hands up, Right? What if you, you kind of embrace it and say, okay, great, tell me more about that. What, what would you have liked to have seen at that portion of your experience in our software as a service? Would you, how would you compare that to a similar experience that you've had with a different you know, software? Um, do you think I should get others to kind of test that out and collect, collect some information and see if they, they would have the same experience? It's a much different kind of approach. It's, it's embracing sort of the constructive criticism um, rather than, you know, put, put, like I said, putting your hands up and, and immediately going into that defense mode because we are so highly encouraged to have this confidence, this air about us, this ego, right? Um, it's how we kind of make it through our day to day. But at the same time, I find that when it creeps into these certain moments where it shouldn't, it can really also prevent a startup or a founder from growing. And that was Natalie Goodman from Incentifind. Thank you very much for coming on, Natalie. Uh, Aaron, listening to that interview, uh, it's very her story is very different from Kumar's, especially in, especially in what prompted her to uh, get in the market. Yes, she says, you know, Incentifind was a complete accident, which is. Yeah, very opposite of what happened with Kumar. He was, you know, he, he saw what he thought was an opportunity and he knew that it was a, a business opportunity and he wanted to create a business around it. For Natalie, she kind of realized that there was this lack of, of resources for things that she was trying to do for her, for her consulting gig and she wanted access to certain information that just didn't exist. And so her goal wasn't to, you know, start a business. Her goal was to just create this access to this information, to this database. And then once she had already created it, she was like, oh, maybe I can monetize it. So it was, you know, very different from Kumar when the, the, her, when she originally 
set out to do this. It wasn't with the intention to create a business. It was more so to just fill like a, a personal need of hers. Yeah, your point there that she, you know, didn't really set out to make a business. She set out to to find a product, to find a product, couldn't find it, then built it herself and felt compelled to get it into the hands of other people. Right. And she says she says something and she says pretty much like once I had the data, I knew the data needed to be made available to others. So she after creating this resource for herself, that's when she was like, oh, maybe I can monetize this. So it really does speak to like, yeah, how her original objective, it, it wasn't it wasn't to start a business. It was to get access to this information that was incredibly valuable. And then she just felt like she had this obligation to share it with other people because of the value it had already brought to her. Right. And she went to, uh, she had to go to the capital factory to figure out how to how how to monetize it because that's that's sort of the you know that's sort of wh- where she was coming at she's like well i need to you, you, you kind of compare it compare it to kumar who was like who analyzed the market and found found a niche for himself to fit in whereas whereas natalie um had to basically learn how to be a how to be a startup founder from from scratch which i, I think is a is a very compelling story and uh the other big difference between the two i think is uh, kumar's is very strategic whereas natalie's is a little bit more about uh kind of a a style for lack of a better word um about you know making about checking your about checking your ego but still being a leader right she talks a lot about how um you know you need to be confident but also very willing and open to I think she says exactly embracing constructive criticism, um, which is I could see how that would play a very large role in kind of her this um, life cycle of starting her her business because she made something particularly for herself. Right. And she wanted to share it with others. And obviously there's going to need to be some type of changes involved in order for other people to use that database get access to that information so she had to be very willing to say you know i i spent a lot of time creating this thing but i made it really for me what can i do to make it better or make it easier for others to use and therefore you know make it a product and and monetize it but she talks a lot about how being open to feedback was very critical to her success and a lot of people just assume that you know startup founders have just all of this confidence all the confidence in the world which they're expected to have um but also how do you balance that between you know you know kind of yeah checking your ego taking other people's advice and then making your business better off of that is really kind of her her overall or the, the main point of, of her advice and experience. And I think that's a very unique, uh, very unique perspective. Uh, not you know not that anyone would ever say don't listen to people, but I, I think um, that's a that's very much a, a style of leadership, a, a, a more reserved style of leadership that you're you're used to seeing uh, from just pretty much in any industry. 
I think so too. And I, I I'm not going to say it's because <laughs> because Natalie is a woman, she was more open to feedback. But I you know we know that startups founded by women women get significantly less funding um, from venture capitalism in general. It's about four four percent of VC dollars starting in 2016 have gone to women founders. And so I'm going to speculate that she realized that there is this uh, divide or there's a lack of, there's large inequity when it comes to uh, the funding startups led by women. And in order for her to make it, she had to you know, just kind of take the advice of others and really, really listen and figure out where those real needs are and where she can make those improvements to, you know, make her business successful. I think that's a good point. Uh, it's part of it is the part of it is that the process itself kind of put her in that position where she had to be very, very diligent and meticulous. Because there was a lot less room for error for her than there are for other people, so I, I think you're I think you're probably spot on there. The other thing I would I would say about Natalie, which I think is just a, a good lesson for a lot of people, is she just assumed that this information that the information for uh, these green building incentives was just available already. Like she just made that assumption because to her it was something that was very important and so she just you know assumed that there was already this thing available that had all this important information but it it didn't take very much for her to realize that it wasn't already there and so i think a, a good another good takeaway from her story is just like don't assume because things are important to you they already exist you know like she called her friend at the DOE and he was like, oh, no, we, like, we don't have anything like that, even though us as, you know, <laughs> what we as reasonable people would assume that it already exists, it didn't. And so just her taking that those few extra steps to figure out if that database was available, if that information was accessible in a friendly way, and it wasn't. And so she she went and did it, but it was just, you know, is, does this exist? No. I'll do something about it. It's actually a similar story. Uh, someone I talked to at Start, Sheila Blake, she's the founder of uh, the startup Wobbum Wall. She was a part of the Clean Tech Open, which was uh, one of our uh, partners that was working, uh, that was also in Maverick Whiskey. And she was one of the uh, finalists that completed the program. And she all, she had a similar story about her house in Houston flooding three times and she wanted a wall that would that she wouldn't have to tear out every time it floods uh, which is a flood prone area and apparently that just like didn't exist so she, so she went about uh, trying to get it made herself and that's where that's where her company comes in so I, I think that's a uh, I think that's an origin story that a lot of people can can relate to or can feel uh, empowered by that you know you don't have to you don't you don't have to be a market hawk, although that definitely can help. Uh, but if you, if you know, if you if you listen and you keep your feet under you, then then you can uh, you can build a product that'll help you and hopefully other people. Right, and I 
And I don't want to say, like, you don't have to be, like, incredibly innovative to start a company. I'm not saying that Natalie and Sheila weren't innovative um, in their ideas, but I would also assume that both of them were not the only people with that idea. You know, Sheila wasn't the only person whose house continuously flooded in Houston. Probably other people looked for that product. Again, it's just they were the ones who decided to do something about it. Agreed. And that's, I mean, and sometimes that's all it, that's all it really takes. So next up on our Founders series, we have George Gutitas, founder of Gridmates, and here is his interview. I'm here with George Gutitas, the CEO and co-founder of Gridmates. George, thank you for talking with me today. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm doing uh, fantastic. So I'm curious, George, what was sort of the the eureka moment or the the moment where you and your and your co-founder uh, decided to that you wanted to make this company? It was a, a significant moment in my life. I was in my home country in Greece. I was watching at the TV news uh, a family that uh, they were living in a dark home with candles. It was cold, so they were wearing blankets. It was winter, and uh, immediately I wanted to provide uh, warm heat and light to this family because that's what it, I, I felt that it was the least thing I can do. And I tried to find a way that I can provide a gift card of electricity, a donation of electricity to a family need, and I realized that there is no way to do it. You can make a donation to a non-profit that is going to be processed and then... Uh, uh, after some months, they might receive a check. I realized that the problem of energy poverty is there, and there is no solution to alleviate right here, right now. And that's why we created a platform called Gridmates, which is a platform for peer-to-peer -peer energy donations. How did you come up with the name Gridmates? So, in the beginning, I wanted to name it Energy Mates, but uh, it was not available on uh, GoDaddy. So... I started doing a brainstorming and I said, uh, since the technology can be implemented in all type of utilities, in all type of grids, you know, energy grid, gas grid, water grid, or even telecommunication in the future, why not name it Gridmates, which is more generic. And uh, I typed it. It was available for a very good price. I cannot expose this information. And I immediately bought it. So Gridmates, we are the friends of the power grid, of the gas grid, of the water grid, and uh, we all join forces to help people that cannot afford to pay for their energy bills, and we can help them alleviate the problem of energy poverty. This is who we are. We are Gridmates. I like that. That's a, it's very representative. So uh, how did you sort of break into the market? How did, how did the company start out? So the, we were trying to find the best, uh, let's say, angle to enter the market. It's a difficult market. The energy market is a very difficult one. Um, in the beginning, we couldn't go for a B2C market, meaning to offer this service to the, directly to the end users because access of electricity was not available. So who is going to be donating? Uh, solar panels are, okay, they are over there, but there is not a, you know, a tremendous... Uh, 
amount of excess of electricity so an individual would like to share it to somebody else. Also, the market is quite regulated, so up to now, still, the accounting of uh, sharing energy credit is not still you know, a valid business model. And that's why we positioned ourselves as a business-to-business company. We have one specific mission to help electric, gas, and water utilities provide smart social responsibility to their customers through a digital platform for donations. So GridMates is a technology platform that helps utilities digitize their low-income bill assistance programs. The final product is the platform itself, which is a white label with uh, our partners, our utilities. So the end user feel uh, that he is uh, or she is uh, part of their, they are using the application of their energy provider, but GridMates is supporting all the IT in the back end. So we are a business to business company. We partner with utilities to help them improve their social responsibility and bill assistance programs. Excellent. Uh, do you have any advice for up-and-coming energy professionals or budding entrepreneurs looking to break into this space? It's a very challenging market, and um, my advice to them is uh, stay focused on their product and on their customers. Uh, try not to change too many times, you know, their business model or the product. And um, the most important thing is uh, stay focused, close to the customer, hear what are the customer needs and try to offer something that is gonna be useful for your customers, but also useful for the community and the people. Uh, it, uh, the long selling cycles of uh, the energy sector is something that it is quite challenging, especially if you are a startup company and you, are, you need money, you need clients, you need investments. So this is something that uh, uh, trying to keep in low burn rate in the beginning is something very important as a founder of a company. So this is the other advice. Try to keep a low burn rate, use every single dollar in the best possible way because there are long selling cycles in the electric, uh, in the utility space. And then I guess just to round it out, what's, what's a, a lesson, what's a lesson that you learned early on uh, in this process that you've really carried with you? The biggest lesson that I learned um, as a founder of a startup company is that uh, the most important thing is uh, the journey, the relationships you are creating uh, with uh, the, other, the other founding members, the advisors, the investors, also the clients, the people behind the clients, you know, your champions in different uh, companies. So the most important lesson is never forget about these relationships try to invest on their relationships with other humans and uh, try to enjoy the ride. Try to enjoy the journey. And that was George Katitas, founder of Gridmates. Thank you, George, for coming on. Uh, so Aaron, I think there are some, I think there are some shared themes in George's story uh, as well and a couple and a, a couple things unique to him as well. What, uh, what, what did you what did you notice listening to that? Well, George's story is very personal, right? Like he had, he felt personally compelled by what he was seeing on TV, what he was seeing when he was watching the news in Greece, and he felt, you know, compelled to make an an impact, to make a social change. And 
you know, Kumar and Natalie, they, they both had their, you know, reasons for doing certain things, but, you know, George really set out to, you know, like, make a, a like, he wanted to change, like, make a significant change in his community or, like, in, in a, a culture, I would say, which is, you know, kind of different from Natalie and Kumar. Similar to what Kumar said, he was able to he was able to see where where there was something missing in the market and tried to find it tried to find his way in and but also like Natalie um, he needed to he needed to work through others he needed to try and he needed to try and fail and try and succeed to to get to where he was um, I remember Natalie said that she had to go through like a couple co-founders through through the incubation process and George said that he had to go through several iterations of the company before um, what what is now Gridmates sort of took place. So I, I think there, there there's uh, sort of some themes developing between these founder stories. Right, and it's kind of this idea of really figuring out what what the biz what your business model is going to be. It's they all had pretty specific ideas of what they wanted to do, but it was how do we how do we go about doing it. George originally thought that he would be like a B2C, like his business model would be B2C, but turns out B2B was going to be the way for them to actually, you know, make an impact and make a difference. And so he kind of had to shift his business um, or shift his, I guess, client base, target base, um, in order to actually get gridmates off the ground and helping people yeah and uh i think that sort of i think that sort of comes through in his advice he's like learn from learn from learn from my mistakes sort of don't flip through a bunch of different business models because that sets it because that sets you back his his advice is less this is what worked for me and and and, and more here's what you can avoid because it didn't work for me so it's sort of uh on the other end of on the other end of the spectrum gives a gives combined with the other interviews gives a nice clear picture on uh, on some strategies right I it seems as if you know George's mission like their their mission never changed but it was how how can they pursue that the best and having to change between different business models created some challenges for him and probably articulating the value of gridmates to other people because he couldn't really you know figure out the best way to do that but he knew the whole time that what he wanted to do was you know create some sort of solution for energy poverty it was just a matter of you know how do I do that he says you know stay focused on the product or customer which he did but on the back end like how can we stay focused on the product or customer and how can we actually help alleviate energy poverty and figuring that out was the biggest challenge for him that's uh i think that's a compelling part of the story Uh, i i also liked that he talked a lot about um partnerships relationships how that was fundamental to growing his business it kind of uh plays into natalie's advice about uh, listening to about listening to people it's um it's very clear uh from listening to all three of these people that you need to that you need to uh, always be to always be aware of where people of where people are at and also to uh, you know let people let people in 
to overuse a phrase, it takes a village. This is important, especially because he mentions, you know, the long selling cycle of energy companies. And if you're not continuously listening to them and trying to, you know, solve these problems they have and they're only buying things every 12 months, then you're not going to be, you know, an ideal partner for them. You need to prove that you listen and are willing to engage in those partnerships so that you can create value for them because it does take quite a while to get in front of them and, and convince them to use your technology. And this kind of does, you know, both go back to what Kumar and Natalie said. Um, Kumar saying, you know, it's not going to be smooth sailing. Things are going to be hard. It's going to take at least probably a year before anybody buys anything that you're doing and Natalie talking about you know trying to balance that confidence with um, listening so I would say that's you know definitely one common theme across all of our co-founders one thing that George says you know when we're talking about and when he talks about the importance of relationships that's also exactly what I heard from um, a utility employee who is the director of enterprise architecture and innovation at TPS Energy, Jason Scarlett, he said on our uh, start fireside chat, he said that partnerships are very important for startups. Maintaining those relationships is one of the main ways that um, TPS Energy, you know, partners with startups, the ones that they have these existing relationships with, and that's you know pretty much exactly what George says, create those relationships and maintain them. So we're hearing it from George, we're also hearing it from you know the energy companies who would be the, the target client, so definitely good advice. Before we, before we head out, we do have one more founder to listen to. Uh, he, a few years ago, he started a little startup called Z Prime that's still going to this day, and uh, I've now unburied the lead. This is my interview with Jason Rodriguez. I'm here with Jason Rodriguez, co-founder and CEO of a little company you might have heard of called Z Prime. Uh, it, welcome back to the show, Jason. Hey, Dylan. How's it going, everyone? Good to be back. Glad, glad to have you back. So, you know, we're doing this we're doing this founder series for startups, and as the, you know, a, a company that started that that started off starting up, what uh, I, I'm interested to kind of hear your perspective on how how this sort of thing came came to be. I get asked this at like ETS and things like that, so it'll, it'll be mm -hmm. good to have a succinct answer. Uh, so, mm -hmm. starting off, uh, when was the when was the sort of moment, the eureka moment? when you and your co-founders, Mark and Stefan, uh, decided you wanted to make this company? Oh, it's good. There was really no eureka moment. Um, so this is good because I think this is, uh, to, to, to be 100% honest, this is probably, probably one of the 10 people who actually know this. Um, and actually, Z Prime started because I got fired from my job as an as a, as a analyst in, in the energy sector of all things. Uh, but at that time, the reason I got fired is because I was so kind of bored in the job, so to speak, that I had a bunch of freelance work, and that was keeping me pretty busy. 
and uh, and and they kind of figured it out, and it was it was a good way to, um, it was a good part in a ways because it kind of pushes you when you're to explore something you you really you really didn't know you should do, and you said, okay, well I have these clients, um, these small projects, and a lot of them were business plans for startups, and uh, and they said, okay, this is a sign. If I'm going to try this, I might as well try this now. And Mark and Stefan had I had already recruited them to work on a few projects that that I was freelancing with, and and we said, okay, <laughs> okay, how are we going to do this? And and I said, hey, well I have I have about four or five clients, and we can just split up the work. Uh, at that time, there was no there was no Z Prime name. It was just uh, it was just a, a handful of projects and clients. This was two thousand and six. Actually, we were uh, 2006. I was already working on these these side projects. Mark and Stefan were helping me. In 2007, a year later, is when uh, you know, my, my job found out, and, and they were like, "Okay, yeah." So it made sense, and and that that was it. And then a, probably about two months after that, I came up with the name Z Prime, uh, thinking we want to be like this global consulting firm doing research and, and uh, with big clients, but that's not how it happened. I think what happened was we started working with a lot of pro freelance projects off Craigslist, masking as a much bigger company, and uh, and we were doing a lot of projects for two five hundred dollars. A lot of them were business plans for companies. Ironically enough, trying trying to raise money. So so not really a eureka moment. I was probably the opposite of a eureka moment. But but sometimes the most interesting things happen in in some of the in situations that uh, you don't mean to find yourself in. And, and then, and then by accident, things things reveal themselves to you. And I think that's probably something I learned, and I've learned to to rely on that a lot. Uh, as as much as you love to plan and, and think about where you're going, sometimes the unexpected is are some is the best things uh, to happen to you, especially in, in business and, and and in life too. Uh, you're kind of cheating a bit because my next questions in order were going to be, uh, how'd you come up with the name, and how'd you break into the market. So I guess my um, following question after that would be, what advice would you have for someone who's trying to get into this space, so either as an energy professional or as an entrepreneur? Well, let me, let me do the name one real quick, because I don't have, just to touch on that. So Z, so Z prime is uh, X, Y, and Z axis. And that comes, because I just, came, I was a year out of economics grad school, and so it's like heavy, heavy calculus. And that was still on my mind in terms of how you analyze data, what what change means, and so prime was like the basically the symbol for the change or derivative. So Z prime, the prime symbol, is that's where Z prime. So X Y Z axis, so the change in in, in, a, in a different dimensions, because rare you're usually looking at things in a two plane, two D X Y Z axis. So Z was was just a different element, of, and then the prime is for change so that's what the z prime name origins are in terms of how how would i recommend getting into this space in terms of working with in the clean tech and utility space that's definitely hard i think it's probably one of the most challenging industries to tap into just because of the the way it's regulated and how entrenched some of these players are and the way the market dynamics are, are, are working if you're if you're a startup trying to work in this space you definitely have an uphill battle, but I think what, what the, the thing you have, especially at this point in time, is you have a lot of these major players, including utilities, 
and some of the, the bigger players, the GEs, the the Teslas of the world, the Solar Cities of the world, uh, Siemens, all these guys are really looking for what's next and looking for that edge to disrupt the market. And so they're really looking towards for startups in particular to solve that problem, to innovate with them and innovate with utilities. And I think that is like the silver lining in terms of if you have an amazing idea, I think now is the time to bring it forward and try and just, and you have a lot of support around you to try to bring those ideas to life. Uh, e even if it sounds far-fetched, I think what, what this industry knows is in five, 10 years, it's gonna look very different than today. It's not gonna be as centralized. Uh, the, the monopolistic features in it, I think have to change because customers are, are driving it. And so I, I would say, bring your ideas forward, look for a, a support network, uh, definitely have some, some utility kind of friends on your side to help you navigate this. Or if you're trying to work with cities, have some folks who have worked with cities and understand how cities make decisions. Do that, I think you will save a lot of time in terms of your planning and, and go to market strategy if you do that. And uh, yeah, that, that, that would be, I think, and also be prepared for the long haul if you're working with investors or, or someone really trying to fund it, really help make sure they understand that, that this is a long-term play. If you're looking at a traditional return on investment, uh, you're probably going to have some upset investors, especially if they don't understand how these decisions are made and how infrastructure is, is financed. So if you can take that long-term view and, and have some patient investors or patient capital, you're, you're definitely setting yourself up to success. Uh, this is not like technology where your product is probably going to scale in, in three to five years. You're, you're probably trying to think 10 to 15 years be, to be able to get that type of market growth or, or strong penetration. It really doesn't matter what side you're trying to play on, whether it's distribution, transmission, or you're trying to do something at the edge. And that was Jason Rodriguez, co-founder of Z Prime. Uh, thanks, Jason, for coming on. Aaron. Uh, now that you've heard, now that you've heard how Z Prime came to be, uh, what what do you think of uh, what do you think of Jason's story? Well, I've heard the origin story of Z Prime quite a few times, and I have to admit it's quite serendipitous to find out that Jason was fired from his job, and that's why he founded Z Prime because. As, like you mentioned, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that I was also fired from my job at Merrill Lynch. So I was trying to work at Merrill Lynch and Z Prime before I became a full-time Z Prime employee. But I ended up um, getting fired because I was trying to work at both Merrill and Z Prime at the same time. And I enjoyed Z Prime so much more that I prioritized it. And my boss at Merrill recognized that, it, that I just wasn't passionate about my job. And so she kind of was just like, I can tell that you don't want to be here. So we have to let you go. And I was just like, yeah, that's correct. I, <laughs> I still have this you know, other job with this startup that I, that I really love doing. And then six months later, I was a full-time Z Prime employee. And I've, I've been here ever since. So I really relate to Jason's story in the sense that it, it like he calls it the opposite of a eureka moment but it was kind of this defining moment in his life where a lot of people could have felt you know like knocked down and deterred but he really looked at it as like maybe it's, it's a blessing in disguise type of situation and i think that can resonate with a lot of people yeah i, I clearly i didn't know that about you and i didn't know that about uh, Jason.
Jason either. He he said that that's the first time he's ever really like gone out and told people about it. Um, so I, I yeah, I think that is a I think that is a very relatable story, and it's not. Um, and and yeah, what I think is really cool about it is that it's it's not glamorous, but it's real. It's it's not like Jason's like yes, I pioneered into this. He was, but he was like you know I was doing this thing. I wanted to do I, I wanted to do and I was doing this other thing that I didn't want to do and then the and then my hand was kind of forced and I and I went all in on this and I I think uh, I think that that's something that a lot of people not just founders can relate to clearly like 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 you like you did right and I the most relatable part about it is I'm going to you know assume that. Jason took whatever job that was that he had because, you know, he graduated college and it's time to, you know, support yourself. It's time to go out and get a job and, and make some money. And it's hard to leave that, you know, security behind. And I was in college and I wanted an internship and I was pursuing one at, like, an established corporation, Merrill Lynch. And took about you know four or five months of me trying to balance these things and realizing that it just wasn't worth it I could I would rather sacrifice that stability and really work in an area that I was passionate about that being G prime and having to deal with the ups and downs of, of working with a startup the uncertainty of it um, play playing out now for me but it was a, it's a hard decision to make and sometimes, and I think that's really what the most relatable part about it is, is trying to, you know, taking that step away of kind of this traditional way of, of going about things and pursuing a career and being willing to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk into some uncertain territory, but it's going to be what makes me happier and what makes me feel like I'm going to be doing something more fulfilling. Uh, so since you know since you you can personally relate to his story a lot what what did you think about uh the the advice he gave i mean his advice is you know pretty consistent with his a lot of our other co-founders advice he talks a lot about the importance of partnerships and listening to people who have knowledge of the industry so that you can avoid some of those mistakes of being kind of a, a newbie in that space and i think you know, that's very important. I've learned a lot from people I've worked with and try to soak in as much, you know, of their knowledge as I can. And um, I, I just think, you know, it's important. It has to be pretty important. It may be the most important advice for startups getting into the energy industry is that partnership piece. Yeah, and I, I think there are, you're right, there are some, there are consistencies between all of the stories um, and all of the advice that there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of listening, there's a lot of hard decisions. And then there's just the fact that um, no, no matter who you are, it's just really, really hard to start a company and have it, have it flourish. Um, I will say that the, you know, the, the, the way that Jason uh, explained, explained himself, uh, the new the new information of his origin story and uh, what he views as most important that's all very quintessentially Jason. I, I know a lot of our listeners may not know him personally, but uh, it, it it does like all of what he said makes sense knowing who 
it's coming from. Absolutely. And he definitely, you know, lives out that advice. We, as Deep Prime, you know, obviously we have a lot more familiarity with this company, seeing that we work for his company. We are still, you know, we, we don't change our business model, but we are constantly looking for new ways to grow the business, new ways to, you know, get revenue to come in. And I think that's because Jason does such a good job of listening to our partners, listening to utilities, identifying where things aren't going right because he is you know, constantly listening and trying to learn. And then we pursue those opportunities based off, you know, what he's hearing. So he definitely, you know, lives that out. And it's very, very core to our business today. Now that we've listened to all four of, of these interviews, uh, what do you think makes for a good makes for a good startup? If you were get about, if you were about to take this and go out and found your own energy startup, uh, what would you keep in mind? Well, I think the first thing I would do is just start talking to people and asking questions. It really does seem like those partnerships and those relationships are going to be the key to you know a startup, especially within you know the first two five years. Are you listening to people? Are you actually solving a real problem? That's where I would definitely start because that seems to be how a lot of these folks—George, Natalie, Kumar, Jason—have made it by really identifying the right problem and creating value for people based off what they've learned. Well, Aaron, uh, we, we definitely look forward to uh, seeing seeing your, your startup now. Um, Aaron's going to be leaving the show. I'm just kidding. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, Aaron, for uh, talking with me today about this Founders series. Of course, Dylan. I'm really excited about this series that we're doing. There's a lot of talk about innovation and transformation in the industry in general, the, the energy industry in general, because of digitalization. And startups are going to play a large role in that. So it's really inspiring to hear how some of these folks have already been pursuing change in energy and so i'm just happy to be here to talk about it you can find our research and media at etsinsights.com you can find us on social media at dy lockwood at aaron hardick at z prime underscore research now that start now that start is over we're about to ramp into uh city of city of the future season so please keep an eye out for that going forward my name is dylan and we'll see you all next time Thank you.